Let's get our Bibles together. Uh, we're going to be in Exodus 32 and 33. Exodus 32 and 33. So go to the uh, front part of your Bible. You have Genesis, you have Exodus, and then we're going to be in chapter 32 and 33 of, of Exodus. Uh, just before we jump into that, I wanted to throw this out there, uh, that through our combined DCs for this season, um, I battled through what kind of focus we should give, uh, and finally I've decided on um, working through the same kind of curriculum that we're actually working through with Grace for Youth. Um, just, just in the handful of lessons that we've already done with the kids, uh, it's just been, it's been a different approach in some ways to engaging with truth, understanding identity and understanding um, the promises of Christ and whatnot and how to walk in freedom in Christ. And so we're going to be jumping into this this season. Uh, there is a participant's guide to this. Uh, I would say you don't absolutely need it for our combined DCs, but if you want like some material to kind of help prep you for the combined DCs, this is about seven, eight dollars on Amazon. Uh, but also, if any of you are uh, hoopla lovers, anybody? Anybody? Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's some good stuff on hoopla, but you need a Philly library account in order to get all the free resources there. This is free on hoopla, so uh, along with a lot of other stuff. So it's a good way to kind of get around the charge of seven, eight bucks um, if, if you'd like uh, this added material to help uh, throughout the season. Uh, if not, that's okay, too. It's not as though you're absolutely missing out. You can show up, and we'll go through uh, that material. But if you want to go a little deeper, that would be a great way to, uh, to do that. All right. We're continuing our series, A House of Prayer, God's Vision for His Church. Um, and we're looking at contending for one another. Specifically, we're looking at intercessory prayer. Uh, I've never preached a message on intercessory prayer. I looked back and was like, We've never touched on this. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of excited, so excited, that I actually had to take this sermon and put it into two sermons. Uh, so we'll hit on a few points today, and then next week we'll finish out uh, this section, and we will finish out the series. So Exodus uh, chapter 32. We're going to jump around just a little bit in the initial reading here. Um, we're not going to read both chapters just certain portions of it, so I'll direct you through it as we read. If you remember, God's people have been taken out of Egypt. They're now in the wilderness. God has come to his people and laid down the Ten Commandments, so to speak. He's laid down the covenant before them and said, hey, are you going to follow me or what? And they respond, yes, yeah, we're all about following you. You've done mighty works. We've seen it. We want to follow you. And now what has happened is Moses has gone up the mount to hang out with God again and have some more dialogue with God and how to lead the people. And during this time, the people say, hey, what's taking so long? Let's, let's create our own little God, this golden calf, right? And they end up having a, a worship time with the golden calf. This enrages the Lord. And we see now kind of the fallout of these things in verses 30, or chapter 32 and 33. In chapter 32, I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. In verse 9. It says this, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, a stubborn people. 
Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning wrath and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham. Remember Isaac. Remember Israel. Remember that new covenant name. Remember Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Uh, if you jump down to verses 31 and 32, although God relents, there is still judgment that's brought upon his people. 3,000 are killed, right, in this judgment. And now Moses says, in verse 31, he says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now jump to chapter 33, verse 12. 33, verse 12. Another interaction that Moses has with the Lord about these things. He's, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let them know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses says, Now, therefore, if you found favor in me, if you have found favor in, that I've found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Verse 15, and he said to them, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found, again, this is going to be important for next week, you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. 
And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you have made yourself known to us. That the true mediator, Jesus, has come. And he's opened up the way by his blood. The veil has been torn through his accomplishment. Jesus, we honor you as the one who gives us every right not to just come into the throne room of God, but to come boldly with confidence Thank you that you are the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus, how good you are to us to open up the way, to be the true intercessor of the intercessors, to lead the way into the presence of God. We thank you, God, that you've made yourself known. And now, God, we pray, we pray that you would work among us to recognize the worth and value of praying for one another. That we can do something Christ-like and in interceding for one another. And that you are a God who loves to partner with your people's prayer. You love to bring blessing to us through the prayers of one another. So God, make us a people who love you, who minister to you, who prize your presence, but out of the overflow of that, go boldly into the throne room and petition, ask for blessing that it might be brought to others. God, show us what it is to be an intercessory people. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far uh, in this series, we've seen that sometimes we don't attain the blessing of knowing God, we don't attain the blessing of going deeper in relationship with God because we fail to contend for communion with him. God's really sitting back inviting us, saying, will you contend, will you come after me? We learn that from Jacob. Jacob was given to seeking approval and significance in all other things. He thought he had to earn it. He thought he had to do it himself. And God's saying, no, come after me, hold on to me, contend for me. And we find that Jacob did just that. He embraced God until God blessed him with his presence. For many of us, we don't go deeper in relationship with God. We don't even, for some, even don't even come into relationship with God because we don't want to contend with God. We don't want to go hard after him. We want to keep our hands full with all the worldly things. And so sometimes we don't attain the blessing of knowing him because we don't contend for communion with him. But also, as we saw last week, we saw that sometimes we forfeit blessing from God because we don't contend with God for the blessing, right? We, at, we don't ask, and therefore, as James says, we don't have. God is actually God who says, come on, like, come to me, contend with me, come and put your petitions before me. He's not a God kind of stiff-arming us, saying, hey, keep... Keep all your petitions to yourself. He's not one with a scowl looking down at us saying, hey, you're just being a brat right now. Give me some space. He's a God with open arms saying, no, come, bring every petition 
to me, but come with persistence. Come to me, and then come to me again, and come to me again, right? Because in that, we see even from the story of Hannah last week that she came day by day, and and even as the text says for Hannah, year after year, fasting and praying, contending with God for the blessing. God loves that because in that, he gains a partner, right? It's for Hannah to say, uh, you know, God, like, you can own the blessing if I can just birth the blessing, right? She finally came to that point in her persistence in contending with God to this point of receiving the blessing, but in receiving the blessing, she also is becoming a partner with God in contending for that blessing. Folks, it's all to say this. Sometimes we don't receive the blessing because we don't contend with God. Now this morning, sometimes we don't gain the blessing because we, cont- we fail to contend with God for one another. It's just another layer. It's another dimension, so to speak, in terms of prayer. Sometimes we don't gain the blessing because we fail to contend with God for one another. We would call this intercessory prayer. That's the terminology that's oftentimes used for it. Intercessory prayer is simply the work of standing between God and others. It's becoming something of a spiritual mediator, right? When do you need a mediator? When a relationship typically is not doing so well. You need someone to stand in the gap and to, in some sense, contend between the two parties in order to bring about a good result within that relationship. And in some sense, that's what intercessory prayer is all about. It's standing in the gap between God and another and working, doing the work to see blessing brought about in that relationship. Or we could define it more specifically this way. Intercessory prayer is the act, and this is important that we say it this way, of serving both God and others in order to see God's promises and power realized in their lives. Intercessory prayer is the act of serving both God and others in order to see God's promises and power realized in their lives. And, and it, therefore, it's, it's important to note that intercession is not first the work of just asking stuff from God to give to someone else, but intercession is actually something that flows out of worship. It's ministering, serving God before actually bringing the request to God. It's, it, we could say that intercessory prayer is the consequence of worship. When you've leaned into God and you've leaned into his heart, now as one who is a worshiper of God, you've come to know his heart so that you might rightly ask according to God's heart for someone, right? To bring blessing upon someone. Intercessory prayer is that which flows out of, is a direct consequence of intimacy with God. Intercessors, they love to know God's heart. They love to share in God's heart so that in agreement with God, in true partnership with him, they can pull heaven down in some sense for the good of others. This is intercessory prayer. Are you an intercessor? Do you intercede for others? Folks, this is God's vision for his 
church, right? A house of prayer, part of which is intercessory prayer. And to some degree, even before getting in the text here this morning, I want you to see just briefly, we are all called to this work. Some to greater or lesser degrees of intercessory prayer, but intercessory prayer is commanded in Scripture to everyone. For instance, James chapter 5, verse 15, in order to see the blessing of healing brought into another person's life, James simply says, pray for one another. And we typically hear that and it's like, okay, yeah, I'll pray for one another. But it's, it's intercessory prayer. It comes with all the substance that we just talked about, that it's important to know God's heart, be worshipers, and through worship, we then know how to intercede for others. James 5.16, in order to see healing, pray for one another. Or Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, in order to see spiritual battles won in the lives of others, Paul will say, make supplications for all the saints. Stand in the gap, in other words. God's not only interested, however, that we would intercede for one another, but God even says, 1 Timothy chapter 2, that we're actually, uh, just put on the seatbelt, right, this morning. God, God says we're actually supposed to intercede for our governing authorities. And still, God will say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, we're supposed to intercede not just for governing authorities, but for our enemies. Sometimes we don't know the difference, right? But God says, nonetheless, this is my heart. If you're going to share my heart, this is what intercession would look like. That you would pray for Donald Trump. Don't matter what you feel about him, God says, no. Come and know my heart so that you may know how to pray for him. And for any other enemy that you have, whether it's your cranky neighbor or whether it's that person at work that just is creating havoc within the camaraderie of the office space, like it's to pray for them, to intercede on their behalf. Now, not only does Scripture then command intercessory prayer for us, but what it also does is it powerfully illustrates it. And I just want to give you two illustrations, one positive, one negative. Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison, right? Shackled up, locked in, God's people pray. And what is the result? But you have this supernatural, angelic jailbreak that ends up happening, right? The chains are falling off, the doors are opening, you know, and, and the angel is coming alongside of, of Peter and he's nudging him, waking him up. Hey, hey, wake up. It's time to roll, right? So in those moments, we have this jailbreak happening and then the text kind of backs away from that scene and is directed to a group of people. And what are they doing? They're praying. They're praying. They've just lost James. Now they're praying for Peter. And what happens through their intercessory prayer? There's an angelic invasion. Supernatural jailbreak that happens. Scripture doesn't illustrate these things just so that you would be like, oh, that's what happened in the Bible. That stuff doesn't happen anymore. It's illustrated in the Bible so we would have expectation for what God still does today. Okay? Now, that's a positive example. There's also a negative example. If, uh, Ezekiel chapter 22. God's people are in sin once again. They're rejecting him again. And God is bringing fierce judgment upon his people. 
And in verse 30 of Ezekiel 22, this is what God says. He says, I looked for someone. I looked for someone. Someone, God says, to stand in the gap between me and my people. I looked for someone to stand in the gap, to do some intercession, so that I would not have to destroy them. But God says, I found no one. Folks, God is looking for intercessors. He's looking for worshipers who long to know his heart and are willing to do the labor of kind of standing in the gap. God's not just this God who's just kind of unhinged in his wrath. He actually wants partners. He wants us to, to, to be inclined to his heart and say, God, I'm, I'm with you in this, such that when God is, is either withholding blessing or whether it's that he's about to bring wrath, he says, come on and have a say in this. Be careful for any of you who are deeply rooted in Reformed theology that you don't take the sovereignty of God and put it on such a pedestal that doesn't allow for our interaction with God. God is sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he's chosen to use you and your prayers to actually matter in what he does. Prayers are not just religious kind of dutiful things. It's actually you have the the right to step in boldly into his throne room and actually make a difference perhaps in the life of another. Now, God has the right to say yes, no, or wait. Of course. But he's a God who's waiting. Do I have someone who's going to stand in the gap? Now, for our purposes this morning, I want to look at Moses and learn two quick lessons. We're going to have a third uh, next week. This became too much for me, so I figured we'll break it up a little bit. So a few lessons, a few lessons to learn on how to be effective at what God commands and desires of us, and that is namely to be intercessors, those who contend with God for the good of one another. So the first lesson is this. True intercessors love the people of God. They love the people of God. Once again, as we've entered this story, God God's people, some two million plus people, you know, it's not just this small crew, it's a massive camp, it's a massive amount of people. They have witnessed the power, the majesty of their God. He's brought them out of Egypt through those miraculous plagues. He split those judgment waters at the Red Sea. He's unleashed those judgment waters on the Egyptian army. He just obliterated them in a moment. He has miraculously provided water to this people. He has miraculously provided daily manna for this people. He has led them by a pillar of smoke by day and by fire by night. The hand of the Lord has been clearly seen and known. And by the way, they've just been at Mount Sinai. They've seen the mountain shake at his presence. There is no doubt Yahweh is real, right? And yet, <laughs> and yet, after saying, hey, we're on your team, God. We'll join up with this covenant thing that you got going on. Just a few moments later, what do they do? But they, they get impatient, and it's time to throw together a golden calf. And now God is enraged. 
He's enraged at his people. The idea is that of they've made covenant with God, which means it's like a marital union. They've made vows to one another. And so God is feeling the fierce anger and jealousy of adultery, for instance. God's wrath burns against his people. Now, what does God seemingly choose to do in these moments? But, and this is what the text is saying, is that God is going to obliterate his people. He's done. The marriage is off. It's over. He's going to obliterate his people. And God's plan is, I'm going to start this little plan of redemption over with Moses. Verse 10, it says, God says to Moses, I will make you, uh, I will make out of you a nation. God is saying, I'm going to fulfill my promises of redemption through you. The Messiah, he's going to come through you. It's going to be a nation established through you. God is holding out a profound and divine privilege to Moses. This is amazing. It is amazing what God is saying. Hey, this could be yours, Moses. (laughs) But what does Moses do? Out of love for God's people, Moses rejects God's offer. (laughs) This is is great. This this changes everything. This is an incredible destiny, as it were, for Moses. And he's turning it down. And and, and this this is meek Moses, right? This is the guy who at the the burning bush was a bit trembling when God's calling him. I don't have the words to say, and don't call me, and I need someone else to go with me. This is... This is meek, trembling Moses, and now he stands before the fear, this fierce God. God in this moment is wrath. He's burning hot with wrath, and Moses is stepping in. God's offering him something incredible, and he's saying, nope, don't want it. This is a demonstration of, a, of astounding love for such a selfish people. And how specifically does Moses demonstrate this love? This is so important for us as a church. Understanding what it means to be true intercessors. Being an intercessor isn't just a sentimental kind of love that we just, oh God, will you just be with them? What does this love really look like? Well, Moses, in his response to God, he doesn't try to lessen the significance of the people's sin. He refuses to make this sin a merely like theological technicality. Oh, they just got this one thing wrong. It's not so bad, God. Like He's not arguing with God on the basis of the sin. He's actually recognizing that this sin is worthy of all the wrath that God is desiring to bring upon his people in these moments. So what we find then of Moses' love for God's people, he seeks to love God's people by appealing to God himself. First, we see this in verse 11. I'm just going to go through this quickly. He appeals to God's work, right? Moses is literally saying in, the, in, in verse 11, don't give up on the ones you've rescued. You've rescued them with might and power. You've done incredible things. Like, don't just stop. 
Keep doing what you're doing. Keep rescuing your people. He appeals to God's work. He doesn't lessen the significance of God's, uh, the people of God's sin. And then he appeals to God's reputation in verse 12. Moses is saying more or less in verse 12, don't give Egypt any reason to boast against you or your people. Right? It's like when it comes to even us, right? The idea is don't let the enemy bring accusation. Like stand in the way. Don't give them any reason to boast against you or against your people. Don't give Egypt even the words to say. Stand up for your people, O oh God. And then Moses then will not only appeal to God's work and his reputation, but then to God's promises. He's saying, you, you've promised, you've made promises to Abraham, not Abram, right? Abram was the guy before the covenant was made. And so it's very intentional language here. Moses is saying, you've made problem, uh, promises to Abraham. You've made promises to Isaac. You've made promises, not to Jacob, but to Israel. You've made these promises, so be true to those promises. Don't stop what you're doing. Don't start over with me, but have mercy on this people. Now, the question then is, does God really need to know this stuff about himself? Has, has God forgotten who he is, that he would need Moses to intercede and say, God, this is who you are, by the way? Has, has God been in such a rage that now he's just kind of unhinged from from understanding his own character and his own promises and his own purposes? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God, God isn't unhinged in these moments. His wrath is real and it's just and it's right. So then why, why is Moses telling God about God? Well, as Moses tells God about God, this is, this is the beautiful thing. God's gaining a partner. Moses is demonstrating the fact that he, stand, he understands God's heart. He understands God's purposes. And God in these moments, in some sense, is gaining a partner with Moses. Of course, when it comes down to it, Moses' love for God's people doesn't rival God's love for his people. Right? It's not as though Moses is more loving or more merciful in these moments. It's not as though Moses, you know, has a better idea of where the purposes of God should go. But folks, the point is, is this is what God is looking for. He's looking for a people who will actually stand in the gap, right? Who will stand in the gap, not for their own sake, but for the sake of others. Not excusing sin, not diminishing grievous error, but by actually upholding God's work and God's reputation and God's promises. It's incredible. Moses is saying, oh God, I know your heart. Let me just appeal to it. Let me partner with you. And as Moses tells God about God, God is gaining a partner in Moses, a partner who loves God's people and shares in God's love for his people. That, folks, is the essence of intercession, sharing in his heart. Now, to see this love a bit, a bit more, you can't grasp the nature of this kind of intercessory love until you put yourself in Moses' shoes. Stand there with him for a moment, right? Stand there with Mo Moses in these moments and stare into the fierce wrath of an all 
powerful God. <laughs> a wrath that stands then in clear accordance with God's law. Right? It's, it's a wrath that in every respect, you, you can't look at God's fierce wrath in these moments and, and find one aspect of that wrath that is unjust. It in all respects is just. Folks, we, just to insert this, we would be appalled by these things today. Our, our hearts oftentimes don't understand the true standard that God has set for us and the true severity of our sin. We, 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 we don't like the idea of what we actually skipped over in the text, that Moses will come down from the mountain and he'll put swords into the hands of the Levites and he'll say, go slay 3,000 men. Moses has interceded for the people, but there is still judgment that is brought on the people. They're not completely obliterated. But folks, blood runs through the camp. God's wrath is realized. The severity of sin is known. But even, even then, folks, we must recognize that in our culture, we have gotten away so much from the severity of sin. We've lost sight of the holy standard of God's law. These are not things to just trifle with. These are not things to just think of theological technicalities. Yeah, I sin, no big deal, like I'm forgiven in the cross. Folks, we've got to get our eyes into Scripture, recognizing the severity of sin because... When we recognize the severity of sin, then we can recognize the astounding love that we are to have for God's people. As one author, John White, he, he states it this way. He states, Golgotha only makes sense in light of Sinai. You can never experience the urgency of intercession until you see sin from God's perspective. The idea there is the glory of the cross, the manifest love of God displayed on Mount Golgotha for his people only makes sense. You only gain some kind of context for that love when you see it in light of the law that was given at Mount Sinai. We must, we must recognize the severity of sin. We must recognize the holy standard of, of God. Because if we don't, we won't understand the depths to his love for us. We won't understand it. We will just do religious, sentimental love. Oh, yeah, there's the crucifix and Jesus on the cross. Wasn't that nice? What a sacrificial nice guy. Don't grasp the depth of God's love when we don't look at that cross and see it in light of the law, right? God's holiness, his holy standard. God just doesn't throw laws at us to just keep us busy on, okay, what should I do or what should I not do? No, it's part of his nature. It's part of his call for us to rightly reflect who he is. And so when we fail to do that, he must, by his holy standard, bring judgment upon us. Don't lose sight of the severity of sin 
and the standard of God's holiness, when you lose sight of that, oh, just why come and worship? Stay home. It's not worth it. It's not worth it to come here and worship and sing these songs. If you don't understand what Jesus has really saved you from, the true love that he's demonstrated to you, just stay home. Folks, and then when it comes not only to understanding God's love for his people, but understanding how we are to carry in similar form that love for his people, we must, we must stand before the fierce wrath of God as an intercessor and understand something of the love that is required here. This is not just kind of shallow, a momentary, oh, Moses is doing a nice thing. Oh, how kind he is to go before the Lord on behalf of the people. No, it's that Moses understands the great gravity at stake here. He understands the great chasm between God's severe wrath and his tender mercies. And Moses is willing to stand in the gap. You see, that's intercession. That's love. It's incredible what Moses is doing here. He loves the people of God. Folks, when it comes to intercessors, they know something of the essence and extent of love that brings mercy to the guilty. Intercessors love God's people that way. They are people who willingly stand in the gap. Second lesson, then. True intercessors reflect the heart of God. Not only do true intercessors love the people of God, but they also reflect the heart of God. And you see that in something of the love that Moses is demonstrating. But there's more. This love takes on action. We see something of God's own heart reflected. And so keep in mind that great chasm between God's wrath and his mercy and the gap that intercessors step into. And notice then in verse 31. Chapter 32, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. And you may think, oh, that's so primitive. We would never do that. Well, nice cars and nice homes and nice clothes and fat bank accounts and all that kind of stuff. We worship those things. We worship our own comforts, which are not really too much different, right? We're we're people given to idolatry again and again. But notice what Moses says, verse 32, more to the point. He says, but now if you will forgive their sins. He's saying, God, would you forgive them? Will you take your wrath away? But he says, if not, what's the solution for Moses? Moses. Please blot me out of your book that you have written. If you're not going to forgive them, Moses gets the idea of atonement. Punishment must be had for for sin in order for God to remain just in who he is. as, As the typical argument goes, like nobody likes a judge who just lets the guilty go free. Right. And, And if you're kind of okay with that, then you're not the victim in that story. Right? When you're the victim in that story and deep injustice has been brought to you, you want that judge to be just. 
don't let the guilty go free. Our God does not let the guilty go free, right? Atonement must be made, the price must be paid to satisfy the justice of God. And so what Moses realizes in that, he says, okay, if God, you're not going to forgive them, I will be the sacrifice. He's stepping forward and saying, I, I will be blotted out. Blot me out so that they might be saved. Right? It sounds like Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them as he's being blotted out. Right? This is something of, of, of reflecting God's own heart. Moses is, is not only refusing God the privilege of starting over with him, he's willingly putting his very life on the line for the sake of God's people. It's incredible. Moses isn't criticizing the people. He doesn't play holier than thou, like, yeah, I'm so much greater than them, so yeah, you should acknowledge me and, and whatnot. He doesn't play any of those kind of angles. He acknowledges the sin he realizes that atonement must be made for sin, and he puts himself forward as the sacrifice. He's saying, God, blot me out for the sake of your people. What does God do? He refuses. <laughs> Just so you know, thank God for that. Right? Because why? Why is God refusing Moses in these moments? Romans chapter 3, we get to the New Testament, we see it all laid out. It says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, that's us. And we are justified, and we are made right in God's courtroom. How? By his grace as a gift. Not by our works, but by his grace as a gift through, this is so important, through the redemption, through the advocate, through the work that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as the sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus is the one who comes and is blotted out for our sake. And this then, as the text says, was to show God's righteousness. He wasn't letting the guilty just go free no, he was taking that divine punishment and, and demonstrating something of divine forbearance as he passed over those former sins. But those former sins were ultimately not laid on Moses. They were laid on Christ. Moses wasn't to be the sacrifice, nor could he be the sacrifice. He could never fully satisfy the penalty of sins. It had to be God himself who would bear our sins upon his back and upon that cross, himself then be blotted out in order that our sins would be fully and finally carried away. There should be an amen there. <laughs> amen, right? Jeez. <laughs> Forgive us, Lord. Folks, Moses couldn't be that man of God, but he certainly reflected the heart of God. Right? And this is what marks out true intercessors. They reflect the heart of God. They're agents, if you will, of sacrifice. Uh, if I could just brag on some of the folks who hung out here till 1 a.m., right? Praying. <laughs> 
Who are they praying for most often? <laughs> you. Our neighborhood. Interceding. That's what intercessors do. They become agents of sacrifice. They place themselves, as it were, on the altar before their God and say, God, let me burn so that you might bring in incense, blessing upon others, right? They willingly become cruciform for the sake of others. It's not about just kind of mere quiet times and tossing a few petitions. It's about, in some sense, the long, hard, persistent labor of prayer. And if need be, intercessors, they are also then willing to become the answers to their own prayers. God, if I have to suffer so you bring blessing here, if I have to suffer in order that you work this thing out, if I have to step in the gap, let it be. I will become cruciform. I will share in the afflictions of Christ so that blessing might come to my brothers as well. True intercessors reflect the heart of God. They stand like Jesus in the gap. Now, next week, um, we'll finish the last and what I believe is probably the most important characteristic of a true intercessor. Not only do they love God's people, not only do they reflect God's heart, but they prize God's presence. The, I just want to say this. There's so much to learn there as a church. Knowing God's presence, having eyes for God's presence, for what he's doing, stepping in, so to speak, to the work, to what he's doing um, as intercessors. There's much to learn there. But let me end by at least just kind of stating this. We as a church must be a house of prayer. It's like to try to get around this, to try to be a people who are like, oh, we'll just kind of like, Throw up our Hail Marys here or there, you know, our little foxhole prayers here or there. Um, that's not the idea of prayer from Scripture. This is deep relational activity with God. The point being then, God chooses to act and work through the prayers of intercessors, right? And so we have, we have to be careful, so careful. You know, Luther says it this way, if I find that my day is going to be extra busy, I better start off the day with a few more hours of prayer, right? That gets to the point. Like, things get done through the work of prayer, through the work of contending with God, going into that relationship, understanding his heart, understanding what he's up to. And, and, and that's, again, it's not just, you know, being on my knees and asking for things. It's, it's, it's intercessors got to be in the word, right? It's not just this mystical moment of understanding God. I, I got to know God's heart from his word. I got to be pressing into his presence this way so that I actually know then how to rightly pray for God's people. Folks, when it comes down to it, prayer gets things done. Intercessory prayer does make a difference. It does pull something of heaven down. It bridges the gap. It changes circumstances. We could even say it changes destiny for people. And the fact of the matter, just as we have sung earlier, is we are in a fight. Satan would love us as a church to be a bunch of like second string junior varsity prayer warriors. 
right? Never actually growing up into what God has called us to be. He really would, would like, okay, setting time and contending and, and learning what it is to go there. So it's not just becoming another legalistic thing, but it's driven by his grace. It's driven by a desire to know something of his heart. It's driven by a, a realization that God actually wants to partner with me. He actually wants to utilize me for the good of his people. Folks, we're in a fight, a cosmic battle. And so the question is, will we choose to partner with God? Will we choose to stand in the gap? Will we be a people who minister to God, who carry his heart and serve others through intercessory prayer? Ultimately, Lord willing to see heaven brought down for their benefit. Let's pray together. Father, right now, we, we give you the honor, and we, we do declare, we do declare, God, that, that you would make us a house of prayer, that you would teach us what, what, what prayer is, that you would help us in some ways kind of take the old categories that we have in our minds of religious prayer and, and do your work of deconstruction. Make us a people who realize that you're a God, a covenantal God, a God who wants to partner with us. You've, you've gone to great extent to bring us into your family, to bring us into that covenant. You've given Jesus for that very reason, not only so that he would be that mediator between us and you, but also then that we would mimic him, that we'd be Christ-like, even in stepping into the gap. Say, God, we will contend, we will pray so that blessing is brought to your people, so that blessing is brought to our neighbors, to our neighborhood. God, we want to see you on the move. Make us people who are given to this work of intercessory prayer. God, protect us from legalism. Protect us from just doing the labor and never knowing something of the beauty of who you are and who, how your grace works and the goodness of your own heart. Jesus, lead us, we pray. It's in your name. Amen. Just for a few moments before we move on, um, I'd like to ask you guys to keep your heads bowed, keep your eyes closed, just for a few moments of reflection on what we just heard. And just by, by way of response, I would ask you to just raise your hand if you would say, I long for the way things are to change. If that's, if that's where your heart is, just put your hand up. God, I want the way things are to change. How many of you would say, I want a person to change? There's a, there's a person or persons that I really desire to see change in their life. Put your hand up. All right, you can put your hands down. Some of you maybe have spent minutes and hours and days praying for those things and haven't yet seen the change. And maybe some of you have not yet prayed for those things. 
Well, here's what our Savior Jesus would say to you. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who did not fear God and he did not respect people. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my enemy. And for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, even though I don't fear God and I don't respect man, Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she won't beat me down by her continual coming to me. And Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find you to be a people that is crying to him day and night, continually contending on behalf of others, on behalf of these things that you want to see changed? Are you a person of faith that cries out to your Heavenly Father day and night? But then he goes on. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And two men, he says, went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Thank you I'm not an extortioner. Thank you that I'm not unjust. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. Thank you that I'm not like that guy over there. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Not only does God call us to be a people that contends in prayer, to see things changed. He calls us to be people who understand our place before God. He calls us to understand the mercy that God displays and then to contend for sinners before him with the love that God has for those sinners. Have you done this? Or do you find yourself to be a person standing in contempt saying, God, thanks that I'm not like that person. I want to see them change, but I'm so thankful that I'm not like them. Hmm, Lord, have mercy on us. God, as we, as we close this service and we walk out of these doors, my prayer is that we would be a people who contends for and with the people of God with the love and the heart that you have for us. God, that, that defender who would stand against all adversaries to protect us. Lord, would we have that heart for your people, even the ones who don't know you yet, even the ones that we think are awful, our enemies, our adversaries. Lord, would we contend with the heart of God for those individuals because you're a loving God and you call us to love. Help us to be a people who prays day and night, crying out to you, our Father, knowing that you are a rock and you will answer speedily. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you guys stand? We're going to close, and then we have the kids come to sing. Every need supplying, yes, it lives. 